Please take your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Joshua, chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6, we're going to read the entire chapter as our text this morning, recognizing that it is God's word that we're reading here. I would ask you please, if you're able, stand together with me out of honor and respect for God's word. Joshua chapter 6 verse 1, now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once, all, uh, all the armed men, with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times, with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear the, them sound a long blast, on the trumpets have all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up, every man straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. <clears throat> and he ordered the people, Advance, march around the city with the armed guard going ahead of the ark of the, of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priest who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time, all this time the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the people, Do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. <clears throat> So he, had all the, so he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the people returned to the camp and spent the night. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city, once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it will be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the, spy, the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the people shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, the people gave a loud shout. The wall collapsed, so every man charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men, 
and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. And Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out, and all who, are, uh, who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went and brought out Rahab, her father and mother and brothers, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, and they put the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. At that time, Joshua pronounced the solemn oath, Cursed before the Lord is the man who undertakes to rebuild the city of Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. Thus far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. I don't want that to mess up the start here. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho when the walls come a tumbling down. You heard it, right? Was that new to anyone in here? We've all heard it, right? And probably all have sung it at one time or another. We probably sang it at vacation Bible school or in Sunday school classes at some point or maybe some other gatherings that we had with the people of the Lord. This story that we just read from Joshua chapter 6 is by far the most well-known of the stories of the book of Joshua. In fact, it's one of the best-known stories in the entire Old Testament. I would say it's up there and rivals the, the idea of Noah and the flood or David and Goliath, or Daniel and the lion's den. This one is up there. It is that well-known. And Joshua fighting the battle of Jericho. And so now this morning, I started with it, and that tune is probably still stuck in your head, wandering around along with the words. And if we don't sing something else before this service is over, you'll go and it'll be stuck in your head all afternoon. But... But as we look at the story that we see here in Joshua chapter 6, I want us to see that the song is really not exactly correct, is it? Joshua wasn't the one who fought the battle. Rather, it was the Lord, Yahweh, who fought the battle of Jericho. And so this morning as we look at, uh, look at this passage and I want us to consider the Lord's fighting this battle and I want us to consider four points regarding the Lord and the battle of Jericho. And the first thing that I want us to notice, you have the outline there in your bulletins, the first thing I want us to notice is the justice of the Lord's actions here. God calls his people to go in and to wipe out the inhabitants of the land of Canaan, and this starts with Jericho. And so we see them actually doing it in verse 21. We see here, They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. 
This is what they did. They were told to do this. They didn't just come up and do it uh, on their own. In Deuteronomy uh, chapter 20, beginning in verse 10, the people in the, in the wilderness are, are told, you know, you're about to go up to ba battle against some people. And so in verses 10 through 15, they're talking about the people who they're going into battle against who are outside of Canaan, outside of what is the promised land. And so he says, when you march uh, up to attack a city and make its people offer, uh, make its people an offer of peace, if they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be uh, subject to forced labor and shall work for you. If they refuse to make peace and they engage in battle, lay siege on that city, when your Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put the sword to all of it, all the men in it, and so on. So outside of Canaan, you come up and battle against a, a city. If they say, no, we want peace, then you give them peace. If they don't, you go in and you slay all the men in the city. Now down to verse 16, the instructions for going into the land here. However, in the cities in the nation the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites as, as the Lord your God has commanded you. And when you get into the land, you, when you confront a city, you go in and you wipe them out. Now, this is kind of strange to us, especially in our day and age, and we look at it, and, and uh, many people, um, maybe that you've talked to about Christianity and stuff, they look at this, and they're, they're, they're just puzzled by it, and they say, how in the world can a good, loving God demand such a thing? That doesn't seem good or loving. That doesn't seem merciful, and you say your God is merciful. How could he call for the death of all the people dwelling in the land? Man, woman, and child. How could he do that? These people are just going about innocently doing their own business, and you have these other people go in to, to, to steal what they have, and you want him to kill them all. How could you do that? In order to understand, we need to first of all go back to Genesis 15. So hold your place there in, in Joshua. We're coming back to it. But I want you to see this from Genesis 15. <clears throat> you may recall Genesis chapter 15. This is where the Lord makes a covenant with Abraham. And he takes the pieces of the animal and he cuts them. And, and this is where the Lord himself passes down between the pieces of the animal making a covenant with Abraham. However, there's an interesting verse here. And if you're not careful, you will miss it completely. When God is making this covenant with Abraham and assuring him that the land is going to be his and his descendants after him, uh, part of this vision that, that uh, Abraham is having here, this big darkness comes over him. And so in verse 16, the, the Lord kind of explains this darkness that's coming over him. He says, this is what's going to happen. He says, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorite has not yet reached its full measure. He says, back a little bit before that, he says, uh, verse 14, your people are going to be mistreated in, uh, in a land for 400 years. But they're going to come back here. But not until that time. Why the wait? Well, he tells us why the wait. In verse 16, 
because the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. These people who are living in the land, these people in Jericho, you say just the innocent people going about, their, they're not. You see here in Genesis chapter 16, God has said to Abraham, they're wicked. And they're going to continue to be wicked. In a sense, it kind of reminds us of Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, uh, we see that God has revealed himself to all people. He's created us in his image, and therefore there is an innate knowledge of God within all of us. But he goes on, Paul does in Romans chapter 1, says, you know what? They can't look at cre creation and not know that God exists. They can't look at creation and not know his divine power. They can't look at creation and not know that he doesn't exist. And so they try to suppress that and say God doesn't exist. And what happens? In Romans chapter 1, says God turns them over. What does that mean? He turns them over to their sin and they begin to act wickedly. And their acting wickedly is not a good thing and it should maybe push them back to acknowledge the reality of God that he exists, but they don't. He says they continue to suppress that truth. They continue to be godless. So once again, God turns them over. And when he turns them over, their wickedness gets worse. And so he lists these, these things that they do in their wickedness. And he says they still don't acknowledge the existence of God. And once again, God turns them over three times. In Romans chapter 1, God exists. They refuse to acknowledge it. And so God turns them over. And when God turns them over, their wickedness gets worse and worse and worse. That's what's happening here in this land. God is saying they're in the land right now, but they are wicked people. I'm going to keep giving them a chance. I'm going to, keep, I'm going to be patient with them for 400 years. I'm going to be patient with them, but their wickedness will get worse and worse and worse. Let's look at some of their wickedness. Leviticus, a couple of books over. Leviticus chapter 18. <clears throat> Leviticus chapter 18. We'll begin in verse 22. And it goes... Uh, uh, let, let's go maybe to uh, verse 16. Do not, do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. Do not have sexual relations uh, with both a woman and her daughter. Do not have sexual relations uh, with either her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter. Uh, they are close, close relatives. That is wicked. Do not take your uh, wife's sister as a rival wife. And have sexual relations with her while you are while your wife is living. Do not approach a woman to have sexual relations during her uh, uncleanness, uh, her monthly period. Do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech. Uh, for you must not profane the name of the Lord your God. Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. Do not have sexual relations with an animal and defile yourselves with it. A woman must not present herself to an animal to have sexual relations with it. That is a perversion. That's almost difficult to read in a setting like this, isn't it? You think, how, how awful can it get? But then it goes on. 
verse 20, uh, verse 24. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways because this is how the nations I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. What are the people like who are in the land? What are the people like who are in Jericho? He's just given us a little bit of a description here, hasn't he? Now, Deuteronomy 18. One more book over. Two more books over, excuse me. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Verses 9 through 12. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not... Uh, learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, or casts spells, or who is a medium or a spiritist, and who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord, and because of these detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. What are they like? Well, we've seen their sexual immorality is pretty bad. And then these other detestable things we see. This is, this is the kind of people there are there. Back a few chapters, Deuteronomy chapter 9. Verses 4 and 5. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of the land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It's not because you're righteous or your integrity uh, that you are going to take possession of the land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. <laughs> okay, so they're about to go into the land and take it over, and you think, how in the world can God command them to do these things? Well, it's because of the wickedness of these people. He told Abraham, it's going to be because of their wickedness. We've seen it in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, just how incredibly wicked they were. When God made man, all man, he makes man in his image. And that means man is supposed to look like God in his righteousness. Man is supposed to reflect God's image to the, all the rest of God's creation. His actions are supposed to be the actions that God would do. What kind of actions would God do? How do we know? We look at the law of God. The law of God reflects the character of God. And if we want to live as the image of God, looking like God, we do the things that his law tells us to do. When man, when we rebel against God, when we look at the law and say, I'm not going to do that, well, there needs to be punishment for that. I'm sure you've all seen in uh, uh, going around the store somewhere a child that's just really misbehaving and you're thinking to yourself that parent needs to discipline that child. That parent needs to find a woodshed with that child, right? That child needs some discipline. That child needs some justice. On another level, I mean, we, we look at it and we say when, when misbehaving acts like that, when there's that type of misbehavior, there needs to be justice. And we see it in our, in our legal system as well. How often do we see uh, someone come before a judge and he has done just awful, heinous, terrible things. 
And the judge let them go without any justice whatsoever. And they go out and, and break the law again. And we think justice was not done. Justice needs to be done. God, who is the, the sovereign over all of the universe, he's also the judge of the, all of the universe. He is a just judge. And when he sees wickedness, he must punish it. And if he doesn't, he's not a just judge. And so God, looking at the wickedness of these people, he's let them go their own way for so long that their wickedness has become so heinous, it has reached its peak, and now it's time for the just judge to bring his sentence on them. And he brings his sentence on them by using, by using the Israelites to come and to, and to wipe them out. And the only thing that we should be able to say is what the psalmist said in Psalm 51. When we look at this and we think about their sin and our sin, and he says, David says in Psalm 51 verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. What's going on in Joshua chapter 6, when the people come to Jericho and they come and wipe the people out, they're executing God's justice, which he has called them to do, and God will be judged just in doing it. And so we see, I, I, hopefully that helps you maybe to see what's going on here. It sounds strange to our ears and something that we certainly, um, if we ever sent a... a, a, a a force of, of uh, Navy SEALs into an area and they just wiped everybody out, we would be uh, disturbed about it. But in this case, we see what God is doing. He is just in bringing his judgment upon them at this point. Secondly, I want you to see not only the justice of the Lord's actions, but secondly, I want you to see the strangeness of the Lord's methods. We see it in verses 6 through 15 where uh, the... the uh, uh, commander of the Lord's army has, has told Joshua how to do it and what, what he's going to do in, in verses 2 through uh, 5. And then we see in verses 6 through 15 it taking place. Seems kind of odd that this would be the way you would come against this city. Seems uh, kind of unrealistic that the Israelites would be able to defeat them anyway. Jericho was a wall with high cities. It was impenetrable. They couldn't, they couldn't get in there. Uh, they had shut the gates, it says in verse 1. No one went in or, or came out. Israel had not been a warring nation. They were a, a fledgling nation, a, a child, if you will, as, as a nation goes. You think, well, maybe they could lay siege to it. Maybe they could build the ramps that they needed to get up and over the walls and these sorts of things. And you would think, well, maybe that's the way the Lord is going to instruct them to do it. But he doesn't. That's not how he does it told you before, but just in case you've forgotten, there's a story of a little boy who was visiting a church with his parents, and, and when the time came for the sermon, the children were dismissed to children's church, and so after, after the service, the family was gathered around the table eating, and they asked the little boy, well, what did you learn in the children's church this morning? He said, well, they, they told us uh, the story of Joshua and fighting the battle of Jericho, and they go, oh, well, why don't you tell us about that? 
He said, well, okay. So, well, they got there, and Jericho had these big high walls. They couldn't get past them, so what they figured they needed to do is build a good strategy, and they brought in these B-52 bombers to soften them up, and then the Apache attack helicopters came in after that, and they used their Abrams tanks, and they, they destroyed the wall, and they, Joshua commanded a great defeat of the, and they said, Johnny, is, are you sure that's what they told you? Oh, oh, yeah. Johnny, you know it's not right to lie. Is that what they told you? Yes, well, no. But if I told you what you, they told me, you'd never believe it. It seems unlikely that this would be the way you would go to, to do a battle against uh, this fortified city against you. Ralph Davis wrote a little bit on this. I just want to. <clears throat> it's interesting that when we see them, them uh, doing this the way the Lord told them, each day the Ark of the Covenant goes with them. You remember if you were with us before when we talked about the crossing of the Jordan and the importance the Ark of the Covenant played in the crossing of the Jordan? You know, got out in the middle and it's, it's placed right there. Everybody can see as they pass it. What's, what's that saying? Well, it's showing the presence of God. God is here. Yahweh is here. He's the one doing it. He's the one making the water stand up. And now once again we see the Ark of the Covenant going around the city each day along with them. And it's kind of in the center. It's showing a very important thing there. Continuing to show that God, the Lord, Yahweh, is the one who has center stage here in this whole battle. So let me read to you from what Dr. Davis says here. He says, Sometimes it seems God insists on bypassing his people's activity in order to enhance his own glory among his people. If Israel only marches and shouts, there will be no doubt about who batters Jericho to the ground. God still functions this way. His normal pattern is to work through the instrumentality of his people, but since we have a tendency to obscure God's splendor and to steal his praise, he sometimes sets our contributions aside so that we and others can perceive that the overwhelming power comes from God and not from us. Kind of strange that God would do it this way, but who else but God would do it this way? That which would be impossible for the people of, of Israel to do on their own to defeat the city of Jericho, God says, you, you, you let me do it. And here's what I'm going to have you do, but I want you to understand it's me that's doing it. Who's going to get the glory? God, you're going to get all the glory. This is the way it is with our salvation, isn't it? God makes demands of us that we be perfect, even as he is perfect. And we look at that and we go, that's impossible. There's no way I can do it. And so God does what seems so improbable to us and so improbable to most people of the world because we're thinking, I've got to earn my way. But God does something amazing. He says, what I demand of you, perfection, absolute perfection, absolute obedience to my law, what I demand of you, I am going to provide for you by sending my own son to live that perfect life. And then I'm going to do something else which would seem so odd to us. It wouldn't be the way we do it. It wouldn't be the way we would think of doing it. I'm going to, I'm going to take your sins and apply them to him, and I'm going to punish him for your sins. 
And in return, I'm going to take his righteousness and give it to you so that you will come and be before me righteous. Not in your works, but in Christ's works. I am going to do this for you. Who gets the glory for our salvation? Can we in any way boast about this and say, I did what others don't do? No, we can't. The work of salvation to us is God's work for us. And therefore, it may be, seem like a strange method to us, but it's God's method, and God is the one who gets all the glory as a result. Thirdly, we notice uh, here uh, the justice of the Lord's action. We notice the strangeness of his method. Thirdly, I want you to notice the demands on uh, God's people. We see it in verses uh, 16 through 21. Now, this is kind of an odd sort of thing. He's told the people early on that on the seventh day, he's going to, uh, after, after the trumpets blow, he's going to tell them to shout, and then they're to shout, and the walls will fall, and then they're to go in. And so in verse 16 here, we see his command for the people to shout. And you would think, and if we were there, probably be an immediate thing, right? Okay, shout! And we're not waiting for anything else, right? We begin it right away. We begin yelling and shouting, and we're going to see the walls fall down. But the passage here does something kind of odd. When Joshua tells them to shout... He doesn't stop there, and, and their voices aren't crowding him out, it seems. He, he, he goes on, and he tells some more. He says, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all uh, that, that is in it is to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in the house shall be spared because she hid the spies uh, we sent. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking them by taking any of them, otherwise you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and to bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron uh, are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. Joshua says, shout, and then there's this, you know, 15 seconds of other instructions here before they shout. I think he probably said it, but not necessarily in this order. He probably has told them of this already, and so uh, when he tells them to shout at verse 16b, we might immediately jump to verse 20 when the trumpet sounded and all the people shouted and, uh, and the walls collapsed. That's kind of what we would expect, but it's delayed. Why? Why does the author put it this way? Dr. Davis says, by such literary style, the author, the author, the writer highlights the priority of obedience to Yahweh's command over victory itself. Priority of obedience to Yahweh's command over victory itself. Listen, guys, you're to obey God in this. You remember in chapter 1, talking about the book of the law, none of it shall depart from your mouth. You're not to stray from the, uh, to the right or to the left from it, but you're to do all that's commanded here. He's reminding them once again, this is important. God is giving this land to you. It's not based on your obedience, but because he is giving it to you, you need to be obedient. You've got to remember to be obedient. And the Lord's emphasis on obedience throughout Scripture, to obey is better than sacrifice, right? As God's people, he has 
He's shown such great love to us, and now he's given us this law, and he says, this is how you're to behave now. Now you behave this way. This is the demand that the Lord gives to his people, not to make them his people. They don't become his people because of the obedience, but because we are God's people, we obey. And that's what he's saying here. You don't bring, you don't bring dishonor to the Lord. You don't bring trouble to the people of God. You don't bring all this on because you're being dishonest or you're being disobedient. Instead, you be obedient in all of this. And so finally, we, we've looked at the justice of the Lord's actions, the strangeness of the Lord's method, the demands of the Lord's people. Finally, I want you to notice the salvation in the Lord's judgment. We see it um, where he's talking about uh, only Rahab in verse uh, 17, only Rahab your prostitute and all who are in her house shall be saved. And then, then he comes back to it again in verse uh, 24. Uh, then they, they burned the whole city and everything in it, and they put the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron and the treasury at the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men. Uh, Joshua had sent his spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. In the midst of this story of battle and judgment, we find God's incredible mercy. The only one and the only family of all of Jericho who is saved is Rahab and her family because she has done what? We saw it back in chapter 4. She is seeking God's mercy. She knows he's coming and, and, and what his people are going to do because of his power. And so she asked those spies for mercy. Mercy from the Lord. I want the Lord's mercy on me. And what does she receive? God's mercy. All the rest of the people in Jericho knew he was coming, knew his power, and yet they refused to seek his mercy. It's not a doubt in my mind that if anyone else there had sought God's mercy, they would have received it. Because I believe that anyone throughout history who seeks God's mercy finds it. Salvation in the midst of the Lord's judgment. We know that judgment is on each one of us apart from God's mercy and the mercy that he's shown us in Christ Jesus. This morning as we see that it was actually the Lord who fought the battle of Jericho and defeated the enemies there to go in and take possession of the land so that his people could go in and take possession of the land. He has fought our battles too. Our greatest enemy Sin and, and, and death and the one who brings sin and death, Satan. Our Lord Jesus has come and he's done battle with these and he's defeated them. He has won. He's, he's won the battle. And now he's called us to go in after the victory has been won. We are now to go in, even as the people were to go in then, after the battle has really been won, we are to go in and be obedient to him. So this morning as we look at God's amazing grace and his sovereignty and our salvation and calling us to be obedient, we need to go forth from this place seeking to live a life which would truly be reflective of who God is by being obedient to his word. Well, let's pray together.